Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the JPO Podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we've got a bonus episode in between our July and August coverage of JPO material. Specifically, my co-host Josh Holt will be bringing you part of the foot and ankle section of this year's POSNA annual meeting, which, of course, was in a virtual format. He'll be joined by moderators and authors to discuss some recent research on club foot, lateral column lengthening, and fifth metatarsal fractures. Thanks for being with us, and here's Josh. Well, welcome back to the program. This is Josh Holt broadcasting today's episode from Iowa City and the Stead Family Children's Hospital. On today's show, we will feature three studies from the Foot and Ankle Subspecialty Day program and enjoy an in-depth discussion between the two moderators of the session, Dr. Derek Kelly from the Campbell Clinic in Memphis and Dr. Jennifer Lane from the Gillette Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. So let's jump right into the good stuff. Let's first welcome to the program our moderators and two of our guest authors, Drs. Anthony Riccio and Kirsten Tolchin Francis from the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children in Dallas. They will discuss two abstracts out of TSRH this year, including first, functional implications of the flat top talus following treatment of idiopathic clubfoot deformity. And then we'll jump into the manuscript, do we really need to worry about calcaneocuboid subluxation during lateral column lengthening for plano valgus foot deformity. So without further ado, Dr. Kelly, take it away. So um, Tony, I really enjoyed uh, this study. I was wondering what you thought you were going to find when you started the study in the first place. Well, you know, we were very much aware that uh, the talus radiographically appears uh, rather flat. And, we, and we've certainly seen this in our older kids who had PMRs uh, at a young age. Obviously, as we've all adopted the Ponsetti method, uh, the, the need for PMR is dropping off, but, but we still see this in a lot of our older kids. We're not sure what to make of it clinically. We've seen a lot of issues with impingement due to altered range of motion, but uh, when we kind of went to the literature to seek out you know, whether or not anyone had investigated what the functional implications of this radiographic deformity are, uh, we really didn't find that much. And so that's kind of why we set out to do this. And uh, we kind of expected to see that uh, the flatter the talus was, um, you know, the less happy the patients would be, the more functional issues they'd have with regards to PROs. Uh, and we definitely expected some alterations in gait mechanics, um, which is why we brought the gate lab uh, or our colleagues in the gate lab into the study. I know that uh, Kirsten is on, and I know that we're going to get to the gate lab. We've got quite a few questions about that, but you mentioned uh, plain film x-rays. So what are the limitations regarding plain film x-rays and making some of these measurements? Is there any role for uh, maybe 3D imaging of some of these deformities? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Derek. Uh, in fact, that's that's the number one problem we kind of had to tackle while we were doing this study. Um, obviously, you know, the, the talus is a complex three-dimensional structure, even when it does not have deformity. Uh, once you introduce uh, deformity, and, and in these club feet, it's not just of the dome. Um, it, it's of the tailor neck. It's of the tailor height. It's, it's of the calcaneus, and it's even of the tibial plafond. 
uh, it, it gets that much harder. So we developed a standardized method of applying the Mohs best circle techniques to these plain radiographs with the understanding that we were probably not completely capturing the extent of deformity by trying to assess a three-dimensional structure on a two-dimensional image. Uh, as a result of the issues we had with that aspect of the design, we've actually brought in a couple of our, our coders at Scottish Rite, uh, the mathematicians, those who are adept at uh, computer coding, and we're using MATLAB software right now to actually break down the images into their component parts, which will actually allow us to analyze uh, segmental differences within the Taylor dome itself. Uh, for example, we noticed many of, in many of the Taylor, you know, the posterior aspect would be relatively round, uh, but the central aspect of the dome would be flat. It'd be really good to know if the segmental regions of deformity play into uh, patient outcomes and gait abnormalities. Okay, so now you've uh, you've mentioned the gait aspect a couple of times, and that was really a key component of the study. Uh, the Kirsten has a, a lot of experience uh, in this area. Uh, what particular challenges, Kirsten, did you encounter with gait lab measurements for club feet? And then where does the gait lab offer the greatest benefit for club foot analysis? Yeah, so the, in these older kids, uh, I think we have a lot of opportunity to do a number of different things with them in the gait lab. And in this particular abstract, we really focus just on walking mechanics and looking at just purely the ankle movement. But, you know, the gait lab can also look at a little bit more detail of the foot um, and then also the plantar pressure distribution as well, I think, comes really uh, into play. You know, I think the other part of this is we call it a gait lab, but in all honesty, it's not a gait lab anymore. It's a, it's a movement science lab, and we do much more than just walking. So I think uh, while this was a good first step in this abstract, I think the future, you know, work in this area in assessing kids with club feet, especially the older kids who are trying to be more active, is to do a little bit more challenging stuff with them in the lab and have them do some hopping and jumping and things that they might have to do in sports that they might have more difficulty with and more limitations in, the, in their everyday life. Those are great questions, Dr. Kelly, and it provide a great foundation, Dr. Riccio and Dr. Tolchin Francis. Well, let's welcome to the program Dr. Lane and see what thoughts and questions she's come up with. So, Kristen, in the Gate Lab, I know you said you primarily looked at the, the ankle. Did you notice any compensatory kinematic changes at the knee? Or would you anticipate finding any kinematic changes at the knee with these patients that have a decreased ankle motion? You know, typically we don't see a whole lot of big differences at the knee. I think it's really more of a, an issue of the fact that not everybody shows the same thing, so it kind of gets washed out a little bit. But we haven't uh, looked specifically at knee motion in this, in this group. Uh, that's certainly something we can look at. Um, the changes in, in range of motion um, were, were small. They weren't huge, so I wouldn't expect a large change in their knee motion. Do you think any other associated factors such as residual equinus could play a role in your findings, either the gate lab findings or the quality of life findings? Yeah, absolutely. I think residual equinus, um, I think the, the limitations in range of motion, uh, the biggest factor is it's going re to reduce your ankle power. And whether that's because you've um, got a little bit of equinus or just your overall decrease in range is going to reduce your ankle power generation. So, you know, that's why we need to really look at the strength and see what they can do and how that impacts every day. You know, 
date is not a challenging enough task for some of these kids. So the fact that we're seeing small changes in this in walking is pretty, pretty important in my opinion, because if they're having issues with walking, they're going to have issues with more challenging tasks. So I think uh, that that decrease in power generation is going to be key. Tony, can you elaborate a little bit on some of the differences between your operative and non-operative groups? I know they were fairly small, but did you notice anything? Another great question, Derek, and thank you. Um, we broke them into two cohorts. We looked at the operative and non-operative, and, and even within the non-operative, um, as you're probably aware, having some spent some time at Scottish Rite, uh, there were kind of two cohorts within the non-operative group because, you know, back when most of these patients were infants, we were using both the Ponsetti method as well as the French method of treatment. So we actually uh, did analysis with three groups, French method patients, the Ponsetti patients, and then those who failed one of those two treatments and went on to some form of an intraarticular surgery. Uh, we found no differences with regards to gait mechanics and no differences really with regards to morphology of the talus, the calcaneus, or most interestingly, the ta uh, tibiotalar incongruity between those groups, which is really surprising. You, you'd expect that intraarticular surgery would result in um, you know, potentially greater morpholo morphologic changes to the talus, uh, especially those patients who underwent a circumferential release. And it was, it was fairly surprising that that wasn't the case. So I know it's very common after you do a study like this, particularly one with some clinical significance, that someone will ask, how has this changed your practice? Uh, is there anything about this study that's changed the way either of you uh, look at, address, or treat club feet? Well, I guess I'll... I guess I'll take that first. The truth of the matter is it has not. And again, I'll, you know, remind anyone who's listening to this that these were older patients uh, treated, you know, during a time when, at least at our institution, uh, not everyone had adopted the true Ponsetti method. We were treating them with the French method. We were treating them with the Ponsetti method. And more importantly, the, the use of repeat casting for recurrences wasn't, wasn't wholly embraced by everyone taking care of these kids. So, you know, now we, current, we practice uh, similarly to how you practice at your institution. I'm sure how Josh practices at his and Jennifer practices at hers. We're, we're very aggressive with the Ponsetti method, and we're very aggressive at recasting uh, for recurrences to limit the need for intraarticular surgery. So the data we're showing really reflects a, a treatment method that hasn't entirely been used, at least not in the same form we use it today for quite some time. From a gate lab perspective, I think it just really highlights the need to have a really comprehensive evaluation and uh, looking at just, just gate analysis and just walking and uh, in, this key, in this particular patient population uh, may not just be enough. We need to make sure we look at um, overall strength, we need to look at their patient-reported outcomes, we need to look at and a more challenging task other than just uh, just walking. So I think that this highlights that quite well. Yeah, and if I may add one more thing, you know, that something we didn't um, have the opportunity to really highlight in the, in the virtual meeting because there was really no room for discussion, I think it's great we're getting to have it now, 
is that, you know, maybe it's not necessarily the, the flatness of the territory. That's something we all recognize all the time. But, you know, we haven't really been paying much attention to the distal tibia. And, and, and I suspect that patients who have incongruity or a difference in the radius of curvature between the Taylor dome and the tibial plafond might be more likely to have problems, especially degenerative problems later on down the line. I, I kind of think about it like uh, the, the it's analogous to the Suber classification and the hip. You know, the patients who have flat heads and, and flat acetabuli do a little bit better probably than the patients with, um, you know, flat hips and round acetabuli with regards to degeneration. So that, that's something we will be kind of paying more attention to moving forward. Tony, you just took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, my next question was going to be whether you anticipated that the Taylor incongruity index would become a Stuhlberg-type classification for the flat-top talus. Um, oh, wow. So, <laughs> so, move, <laughs> so uh, in your study, you found that Taylor morphology was less predictive of pain and disability, but I'm wondering if you think that this will hold true long-term or whether you anticipate whether if you studied these patients again, 10 or 20 years from now that you might find something different? I'm almost certain we will. We're still, we're talking about patients in their second decade of life in their teens. And that's still really early and those kids are really tough and, you know, they compensate really well. Um, regardless of the, you know, uh, changes along the articular surface uh, as a result of the Taylor morphology, it's probably still pretty early for it to begin to cause any, you know, constant and, and more debilitating type of discomfort. My guess would be that these changes uh, that pa or patients who have more severe changes, more significant flattening, more significant tibio-tailor incongruity are more likely to go on to uh, degenerative changes, degenerative arthritis, and have increasing pain as they age. Uh, that remains to be seen, but we absolutely intend to keep studying these patients, this very same cohort, and all the patients we've treated since, as long as they're willing to come into our uh, motion science lab and be seen. So hopefully one day we'll be able to answer that question with uh, real science and, and real facts for you. Thank you both for this really important work and this uh, great discussion of your findings. Yeah, it's been really great to hear both the very thoughtful questions from the moderators as well as the, I think, important secondary considerations and kind of more thorough thoughts regarding club foot and our treatment and what are we doing for these kids. So I appreciate all of you in that great discussion. And let's take some time now to move on to the other study looking at lateral column lengthening and the calcaneal cuboid joint in particular. So, Tony, I'm curious what you anticipated finding with this study as you set out to study these cadaveric feet. <clears throat> Lateral column lengthening is an, it's an absolutely integral component of management of the flexible flat foot deformity in, in children and adolescents and young adults. We all do it, and we all, we all do it a lot. And we all talk about, you know, the concern of calcaneocuboid subluxation. And if you're anything like me, you've seen it happen. And you've seen it happen despite the fact that you place a prophylactic, smooth, centrally placed Kirshner wire across the calcaneocuboid joint. And in general, um, when I see it, I kind of convince myself it'll be okay. It doesn't look that bad. It's just a little bit. And I'm sure it won't cause any problems down the line with the expectation that it'll settle out. When you go to look you do a deep dive in the literature and you try and figure out where all these concerns come from, 
There's really not much out there. So all I had to go by in developing this study was the fact that I was seeing this occur to some extent, to small amounts, at least intraoperatively, despite the fact that I was doing everything I was told to do. But without literature to back up what I was told to do and what you were told to do and what we've all been told to do, I started to wonder if this was just another example of kind of, you know, orthopedic dogma. And if, in fact, what I assumed was dorsal translation of the calcaneus distal to the osteotomy through the CC joint was actually a different type of motion, a rotational motion that a central pin, you know, wouldn't prevent. Uh, and, and so I kind of started the study with the expectation of finding that maybe the subluxation is not pure, purely translatory. Maybe it's rotatory, which is why a single pin doesn't seem to prevent it entirely. But I'll tell you, I also kind of anticipated that those specimens that were completely unpinned would really spin up uh, and sublux a lot more than they did. And, and, and that, was, that was fairly surprising to me that there really wasn't a huge difference. It's certainly not a statistical difference between the pinned and unpinned feet. So, Tony, uh, what's rotating? Have you been able to decide where the rotation is coming from? And a follow-up question, if there's no rotation allowed, can you still distract the osteotomy, or is the rotation an integral part of obtaining distraction? Okay. So, to answer your first question, what's rotating is the, is the calcaneal neck distal to the osteotomy. Interestingly, and, and this was actually really interesting, and this wasn't you know, part of the slide set that was presented during POSNA, the rotation was actually in both directions. Half the time it seemed about, and it was, was about 50-50 split, half the time that um, calcaneal neck rotates internally, and half of the time it rotates externally. And, you know, it's interesting because we found the pinned group rotated a little less than the unpinned group. And in the OR, of course, you know, we pin these and, and the subluxation we typically see is, isn't that bad. You know, it's, it's not super dramatic, at least not most of the time. And I, I wonder, actually, if that's a result of the fact that it's really hard to actually place that pin centrally. And, you know, a somewhat off-center pin will at least limit some, if not all, of that rotation, which is why it doesn't appear that bad radiographically when we're in the OR. As far as your second question goes, Derek, that's not a question we can really answer uh, with the data we derive from our study. According to those who developed and modified the procedure, which would be Evans and Vince Mosca, um, what you're going for is pure distraction and some rotation, which is why we used a trap we use a trapezoidal wedge uh, to keep these open. Uh, not only to, you know, reorient the talonavicular articulation, but to swing the calcaneus into a more normal position under the talus. You'd imagine that, you know, theoretically, if you were distracting with a certain amount of force and not rotating, all of that force would then be transferred to the navicular and to the calcaneus to improve the relationship of the talonavicular joint and the subtalar joint. Any rotation would be a loss of the force applied and 
theoretically should result in either less tail and navicular coverage or less improvement in the hind foot valgus. So I, I find it hard to believe that you require rotation in order to improve those. I, I would think that rotation represents a loss of the force you're applied with resulting less correction of the deformities you're trying to address. Tony, do you think there's any role for making an incomplete osteotomy to leave a medial hinge and then maybe limit rotation that way? Uh, I'd, I'd worry about that, Jen. Uh, yeah, the issue with that is then you're not actually distracting. So instead of distracting across the calcaneal neck and lengthening the lateral column, that would result in um, kind of lengthening the lateral column with an apex of rotation, either along the medial aspect of the calcaneus or potentially, you know, uh, just medial to that even. That would probably result in potentially better improvement of talonavicular coverage, but it wouldn't lengthen the lateral column as much as we'd like, uh, and it might result in less hind foot valgus improvement. So um, that's, again, this study, this study doesn't even touch the use of a kind of green sticking the medial side. But if you, you know, look at the classic kind of studies that describe this and then subsequent kind of biomechanical studies, you actually need some distraction across the calcaneal neck in addition to the lengthening. And that can really only be achieved uh, with a complete osteotomy. So I'd like to ask, especially based on your title, after this study, do you now worry more or less about calcaneocuboid subluxation? Yeah, that's an awesome question, Jen. That's the rub. Because I think you can interpret this a few different ways. And, I'm, and, and I know you're super bright and you probably already have. So what we found is that, this, is that subluxation is a rotational phenomena that appears to be a dorsal translation when you change a three-dimensional rotatory phenomenon into and look at it on a two-dimensional image. You can take the results a couple of ways. One is we've been doing this for a long time. We've had a pretty low rate of subluxations that have been problematic and gone on to joint degeneration. The single pin, which let's be honest, is never really or very rarely going to be perfectly centered in the joint, limits some of this rotation, and what it limits is enough to keep the problems to a minimal. So keep doing what you're doing. It's been working out so far. It limits rotation to some extent. Another way to interpret it would be to say, you know what, even one patient who goes on to degenerative changes due to some persistent subluxation is too much. And so the simple answer is place two pins, and two pins, as we all know, should be anti-rotational. Now, we, we need to go back and prove this, and, and we will. But in the meantime, it seems to make sense that two pins across a CC joint should limit rotation, which should limit subluxation. So that's, that's another way you can interpret it. And then the third way to interpret it is, you know what? We've been trying to use a pin to prevent translation for all these years when, in fact, What's been happening is rotation, and what we've been doing really is ineffective to manage that. Things have been all right for the most part clinically. Do we need to use any pin stabilization at all? And certainly, I expect that's how the adult foot and ankle surgeons will interpret this because they're 
they're, they use a lot less prophylactic CC stabilization than we do in the peds world. For my practice, based on this, we will now place two pins when we do this procedure. It adds very little to the surgery. Uh, it adds nothing to the post-operative care aside for an extra pin to pull at six weeks. Uh, and since doing this clinically, and of course, this is just anecdotal over the past, you know, several months, we seem to notice a lot less evidence of subluxation on our intraoperative poroscopy. But further work clinically is going to need to be done to see if this translates into any improved outcomes for these patients. It may not. Well, well that's I, a great summary statement to me. Yeah, yeah, that was perfect. I think that's a perfect time to to. And so, well, thank you both as authors of a couple of great studies from a great institution that's really moving work forward in pediatric orthopedics, as well as the moderators for taking your time out of your busy days to join us and ask some really thoughtful questions that really opened up a few new avenues that I hadn't thought of myself that will hopefully spur on additional research and, and thoughts into club foot and lateral column lengthening. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank Thanks. you. We're going to change gears a little bit now while staying in the foot and ankle subspecialty day program. We're going to turn our attention to the paper number 83 entitled Proximal Fifth Metatarsal Fracture Review and Healing Outcomes. We'll have the honor to welcome Dr. Richard Davidson from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to the program. So without further ado, I'll turn the time back over to our moderators, Dr. Lane and Dr. Kelly. So good morning, Dr. Davidson. I'd like to ask you, what inspired you to undertake this study and what did you expect to find? Yeah, so um, I've been in practice a long time and uh, our approach to proximal fifth metatarsal fractures has been pretty conservative, uh, boots, casts, and the like. About three years ago, we started getting a lot of second opinions where at four or five weeks after the fracture, x-rays were being taken, and if the fracture line was still seen, patients were being advised to have uh, surgery for screw fixation or uh, even grafting. My response to these patients was basically, let's wait another week or two, and the vast majority of them went on to full healing. This wasn't coming from just one uh, group of uh, referring physicians, uh, it was coming from quite a number. And so we set out to look over a large number of proximal fifth metatarsal fractures and see how they were doing. And so that was the inspiration for this. Hey, Dr. Davidson. So um, I'm very interested in the classification system that, that you used in this study. Uh, you showed that you were able to reliably classify these fractures into seven different groups. But when you really look at your outcomes regarding uh, time to union, uh, you were able to subcategorize those in, in three larger groups. Do you find that the seven groups are really helpful, or in everyday clinical practice, do you really stick with more of the, the three large groups? Well, we set out to um, really study everything that was in the literature, everything that had been suggested about these fractures, and that's why we chose all seven uh, locations. Um, and then we even looked at whether the fracture was completely through into the joint or whether it was just wedged open. And looking at all of these, we really had an open mind wanting to know what was significant. And when we looked at the amount of time to heal, it really just fell into the three groups, proximal to the um, joints, through the fifth metatarsal cuboid or fifth metatarsal, fourth metatarsal joints, and then in the diaphysis. And it was quite uh, easy to break it down into these three groups in terms of the amount of time to heal. 
So you'd reported that there's a, a different time to healing in each group and then had described different markers of healing both clinically and radiographically as the, as the fracture progresses through healing. What did you use as your definitive marker of healing when describing these significant differences in times to healing between the three groups, the, the five weeks versus six weeks versus eight? Yeah, we, we looked at two things. We looked at whether the fracture was healed radiographically. And that was basically, was there evidence of new bone formation across the entire fracture line and whether or not the fracture line completely disappeared? Uh, but we also asked the question of when were these patients comfortable enough to return to sports? And so using both of these, it showed that uh, while most of the fractures healed pretty well at uh, four to six weeks, uh, the time that the patients felt comfortable returning was longer for the diaphysis and longer for the intraarticular fractures. So I have, a, I have two questions uh, regarding your current clinical practice uh, based on your findings from this study. The first is regarding surgery. Uh, in your mind, is there really any indication for surgery for acute closed proximal fifth metatarsal fractures in kids? Yeah, really um, uh, the only indication seems to be significant displacement or disruption of an articular surface. And all the others healed quite a bit. And we even looked at uh, two and three millimeter separations of the fracture. And as long as the articular surface was intact, the patients uh, healed and did fine clinically returning to sports. Okay, well, that, that's good to know. What about the, the second uh, question I have is regarding your preferred um, uh, close management. Uh, did this study give you any indication of what you should use for immobilization or what is your preferred immobilization? Most of the children are being uh, put into short leg casts, especially the younger ones are rather unreliable and they tended to take off boots and start running around and be uncomfortable. Casting seems to be the best way to go. Uh, there's very little disability for somebody to be in a cast for four weeks. Even the athletic kids seem to get back very quickly into their sports. So based on the study, are there any other ways that you've changed your practice regarding managing these injuries? Uh, not really. Uh, we were pretty much in this mode initially, and it was the uh, second opinions about uh, uh, indicating, well, referring patients to have surgical uh, treatment at four and five weeks when another week or two of conservative management seemed to uh, get them back uh, fully healed. Well, I can tell you that this is uh, definitely going to reaffirm the way I've practiced for a while, but I was always a bit apprehensive at six to eight weeks if we didn't see complete healing as whether or not I should have operated on these children. I think this really helps, uh, helps me to know that we can wait a little bit longer and expect good outcomes. Good. That's our opinion, too. Well, Dr. Davidson, we really appreciate your expertise and for you taking some time this morning to join us on the program. Great. Thanks. Thanks for including me.